Jesus is truly everything. You're like, I know, J.D., we've been talking about that for like 13 months or something. I mean, think about this, how Colossians tells us all things were made through him and for him. And they're all heading toward him. He holds all things together. For most people, this almost seems too ironic to believe. Too ironic to imagine that that every person that has walked this earth in every time frame have been have been ushered into life by this person and that their life matters or not for eternity based on their dealings with this person whether he would have been the coming messiah or the messiah that has come and done all that needs to be done when I talk about it being ironic, I, find, I speak of that because I find a lot of irony in our passage this morning. Irony can be defined as the difference between what is expected and reality. The difference between what is expected and reality. Every now and then people find just very ironic things in life. I, I, I get a big kick out of out of the, just the irony of life. In fact, irony is, is in a lot of ways the, the foundation of 90% of our humor in life. You know, and, and sometimes they take pictures of these things. You know, like the bulletin board on how to save paper. <laughs> Full of paper. Or the award, the plaque that one teacher received telling her, you're or him, you're the best teacher. <laughs> it's like, I, I know the expectation here was for me to feel accomplished by this, but when you misspell your on the plaque, it makes me wonder. I love the one of the psychic, the TV psychic medium. He was ha- going to be having a live show, but it was canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. How does that work? I guess the, the expectation was he was going to wow the people, but the reality was he showed just how unable he was going to be to foresee the future. You know, I would not buy fasteners from this Walmart. If they can't even fasten the sign on correctly. Or I think the, 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 the favorite of this is the statement written in stone that nothing is written in stone. It doesn't exactly get across what the, uh, the artist or the carver intended for it. We tend to think that what can be touched is better than what requires faith. What is tangible, what, what, what is practical, is better than what is spiritually intended. You know, we have the statement, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Right? What I have in my hand is better than what is possible. The Jews reading this letter to them were thinking, I miss the temple. I miss the sacrifices. There's something I can touch. There's something I can walk away from and say, maybe God is happy with me now. 
But the temple and the sacrifices were only a physical representation of what God would provide in Jesus. And the writer explains that, that we have in Christ a far better, what we have in Him is far better than anything on this earth. Even though it is connection with an assembly that is going on in heaven that we cannot yet see. But by faith and by reminding ourselves of the truth, we can believe and we can walk in it. And we know that we've been called to come boldly to His throne in Christ's righteousness. And that calls for faith. So our writer starts what what we have not come to. We haven't come to something that we can touch. But I think by the time we get done with these first three verses, we're glad for that. He says, you, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He's describing the scene of Mount Sinai when God's people of the Old Testament received the Old Testament law. The stipulations the, 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 that they were to live by with him, the culture that he was giving them to live by. But have, what have we come to? He says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. These verses are explanations. They're giving us the reason for the previous commandments that we looked at together the last time we were here in Hebrews 12. The preceding command is in verse 15 where he said, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, unholy like Esau. We won't go back into this here. But, but remember, it was a call for us to watch over one another and to encourage one another to have a sense of a 100% compliance. That we lose not one of our church those who attend here that feel a part of the family, but they have yet to obtain the grace of God in salvation. And that's why our verses begin with four. They're explaining this. Why it is insipidous. Why it, is, it can happen. That someone would do and do and do for God and they might even stand before him one day and say but but Lord didn't I do this didn't I do this and he says depart from me for I never knew you I didn't have a relationship a saving 
relationship with you. This is what we are to help each other check ourselves in and to live in that grace of God. It's possible that we can see to it because of our new covenant relationship with God. And our new covenant relationship with God is explained in our verses in contrast, as you saw, with the old covenant relationship with God. And the dire warning against any of us failing to be saved is backed by our amazing opportunity. We've been encouraged to come before God's throne of grace with confidence. And all that needs to be done has, been taken, has taken place for us so that we can come before His throne in Christ without fear. So we look at this as, and I challenge you, don't settle for less than awesome. Don't settle for less than awesome this morning we, we look at the ironic contrast, as I mentioned, between the awesome and the awful. Both have a lot of awe. But one is pretty awful, and the other is awesome. When I talk about irony, I'm not talking about rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you've already paid. I'm talking about the irony that is so significant that the unrepentant heart will always resist it. Like the heart of Esau, who even though he, he, he missed the blessing and he longed for it with tears, he could not find repentance in his heart. And the heart that misses it lands a person in hell for all of eternity. That's the irony here. Religious people ending up in hell saying, but... My religion was aimed at Jesus. Something you must do if you aren't going to settle for less than awesome is this. Resist the pull of fear-inspiring legalism. As he said, you have not come to what may be touched. I mean, think, think of people saying, I just need something that I can touch. I just need something. That, that's tangible. He's saying, praise the Lord that that is not what you have come to. We've seen that before, folks. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. And here's the quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. In other words, kill it from a distance. Don't even touch it. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. As I mentioned, this, is, this picture is painted of Mount Sinai when God gave the Mosaic law to the people of Israel. The old covenant for which we, the reason why we call that section of the scriptures the Old Testament, which are rich with knowledge of God and even the grace of God. But, follow, but trying to achieve righteousness by God's old covenant was not the point. Let me just 
read for you from Exodus 19 describing this picture. It says, On the morning of the third day when there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. F.F. Bruce says the mountain was so charged with the holiness of God who manifested himself there that for man or beast to touch it meant certain death. We continue reading in in, uh, Exodus 19. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. I was reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology this past week. And he says, he says the, um, if God loves all that is right and good, and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate Everything that is opposed to his moral character. It would have been terrible for a sinful person thinking that they're good enough to stand before the righteous God to expose themselves to that righteousness. They would be exposing themselves to his wrath. We see in Exodus 20... Now when all of the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The old covenant of the Old Testament was announced in such a way that it struck dreadful awe in God's people. It, was, it wasn't just untouchable, it was unthinkable to do so. Even Moses, the agent of God's covenant, was fearful for the wayward people that God had attached himself to. Many of the readers wanted, the readers of this letter to the Hebrews, they wanted, as I mentioned, to return to the temple worship, to return to what was tangible, to what was touchable. But that worship was based on a level of perfection that they could not attain without Christ. It was a stopgap. It was the means by which, Romans 3 tells us, God was passing over their former sins in order that he might show grace to them through Christ. When you are encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace, you are not coming to a place like Mount Sinai, which was not touchable. You know, did you ever receive this this training that if your house or a building is on fire and the room that you're in, there's no fire, but you're about to go through a door 
and you're not sure what's on the other side of the door, what are you supposed to do with that door? Yeah, you're supposed to touch it. You're supposed to feel the door. You're supposed to see, is there a burning cauldron on the other side of this door that I'm going to open it up and it's going to incinerate me? That's always wise. If you had never learned that, now you know it, right? Feel the door. We are being reminded that behind the door that leads to God's presence is not his burning wrath when we are in Christ. We are reminded of what it could be, of what it will be, would be for anyone that enters into his presence without Christ. God is no less holy. He is no less righteous because of this. But we, have to, we don't have to stand in our own unrighteousness. But we are allowed to stand in Christ's righteousness. And that is the gospel. I am unrighteous. Christ is righteous. I deserve death. But Christ de- died in my place. He took on my sin And offers me his righteousness. And by receiving that, I can come confidently before his throne of grace. To find grace and help in time of need. Discerning the truth that we should live by begins with checking to see if it fits with the gospel. We don't live in a relationship with God because of anything that we have done. We are able to walk with God because of what Christ has done. Thus, if you're going to settle for less than awesome, you also must embrace the call, call of awe-inspiring grace. Embrace the call of awe-inspiring grace. This picture is painted here for us that is meant to just layer upon layer upon layer. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, means you can't count them, in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This reminds me of how Ephesians 1 describes every spiritual blessing that we are given in Christ. This is like describing the, the, um, the welcome committee of saints that enter into God's presence. But also it's being described to us that as we come together or as you come to God's throne in prayer, you are joining in with this assembly. And you do so in faith. And you may need, you probably need, you should remind yourselves of these truths so that you will. Awe-inspiring grace means belonging to the awe-inspiring setting that we see here. A gospel relationship with God leads to a better location. A better location than some ornate cathedral or ornate temple and some person in all these flowing robes and, and a staff and, and incense and, and, and all these things that, you know, you look at that person and you think, man, if he tells me I'm holy, that must mean I'm holy. Oh, it's far better than this. 
a better location. The physical Zion was always understood to be the mount on which Jerusalem stood. It meant access to the dwelling place of God, his temple. But the Zion that cannot be touched at this time is far better. It is the heavenly Jerusalem that we are citizens of in knowing Christ. And, and God's people are surrounded by celebrating celestial beings. And we will also join with them one day. But stand in faith on the fact that when you come to God in prayer, you join in them now. Also, awe-inspiring grace means fitting in with awe-inspiring participants. A gospel relationship with God joins us with an elevated congregation. This is the term assembly, which is the term that most other places in the New Testament is translated church, ecclesia. They are the church manifested in heaven right now and that you and I will be joining in, in knowing Christ Jesus is the firstborn. He is the only Son of God. But in Christ, we become co-heirs with Him. We become an assembly of the firstborn. The firstborn people. As we gather now, we will one day gather in God's presence. We stand in common, equal ground before Him. All of us being firstborn. All of us being Awarded a lion's share of the inheritance as the firstborn would have been in Middle Eastern culture. And because we identify with Christ, this, this, it, does, it gives us a thus equal value as citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we are enrolled having our names written in the Lamb's book of life. Which somehow, as we're told in Scripture were written before the foundation of the world. Figure that out. It's a God thing. A gospel relationship with God also allows us to stand before the all-knowing judge of all without fear. One writer says, this is what impresses most in this scene. God is no longer non-approachable or or just awe-inspiring. He dwells among a worshiping society. That's what's amazing here. The judge is walking among them. He's in their presence. They're in his presence. They stand in the perfection of even before, they stand before the, in their perfection before the judge of all. A gospel relationship with God joins us with these perfected forerunners of us. Those who have gone before us in Christ. They are those who have been declared righteous by the judge of all because of Christ. And they stand in that perfection even before this judge who knows all and sees all. This carries forward the theme of Hebrews 10.14 which we've loved so much. That by a single offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you know Christ, that's you. That he has perfected you for all time even as you are still being sanctified.
We also see, lastly, awe-inspiring grace means the awe-inspiring salvation. A gospel relationship with God is made possible because our saving mediator that we have of a better covenant, the one who has made it possible by being our great high priest, Jesus himself, a gospel relationship with God is made possible also because of his perfect sacrifice as that is what has been being argued and laid out to these Jewish people throughout this letter. You have a great high priest. He has made that sacrifice in a better temple, in a spiritual Jerusalem. And in Christ, you are already members of it. You might know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was the first son, the one born to Adam and Eve. He was born into sin because sin had already come into the world because of Adam and Eve's choice to walk away from God by disobeying his command. And Cain, even though Eve was so excited at his birth, And named him Cain, saying, I have gotten a man from God. We see sin play out in this first family when Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy and anger. And Abel's blood, we are told, spoke to God, if you will. And it spoke a word of condemnation. It spoke a word calling for vindication, calling for justice. And when God confronted Cain, that's when he tells him, the blood of your brother calls out to me from the ground. It called for vindication. It called for justice. But Jesus' blood speaks of God's righteous judgment on sin that has been poured out on Christ offering grace to his followers you know um, I was reading recently my dad wrote memoirs that's that's what Bowman's do my younger brother wrote memoirs at age like 23 but um, but I I love reading these um, learning more about my mom and my dad and things and But it just gives my dad the opportunity to say, it's in my book. Read it, you know. Anyways, I digress. Um, So in there, I I learned of my mom's testimony. I mean, I've, I've heard these things from her before, but I was reminded of it. And she was sitting in church. She, they were attending church together. They were were um, sitting through, you know, every Sunday. They had their their um, uh, they, but and they were had signed up to be a part of a, of a witnessing team, a visitation team that would go and meet people that had come to the church and, and seek to share the gospel with them. And as a part, they had a person come in to train this team, and, and he was uh, instructing them on questions to ask. And he said, one of the questions that you can ask is, if you were die, to die tonight and the Lord were to say, why should I let you into my presence? What would you say? And my mom said she thought through that and she thought, I would say, I've always gone to church. 
I would say, I'm a good person. I would say, I haven't killed anybody. You know, my last name isn't Hitler, you know? And that opened the door for her to realize it is not my righteousness. It is not my actions that allows me to have a relationship with God. It is not what I do. It is what Jesus has done. The person and work of Christ must be what we've put our total trust in alone. We're going to sing a song in closing here this morning. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. Your cross testifies in grace, tells of the Father's heart, and makes a way for us. Now boldly we approach, not by earthly confidence, it's only by your blood. Imagine, if you will, you're out with a friend, and the friend, you know, is kind of being like sneaky, you know, keeps like texting, like, you know, is like, oh, well, let's go do this. Okay, let's go do this. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, time for us to go back. You're like, okay, what's going on? Like, okay, please tell me you'll act surprised. We've put together a surprise party for you. All right? And, and um, you know, just on the other side of that door is, is uh, all of your friends. We've been keeping it a secret. Your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents are there. We got a thousand-member choir. All right? Act surprised. In fact, after the choir sings, we brought in your absolute favorite band of all time. And they're going to play. In fact, Chuck Norris is there. Okay? All right, ladies. Matthew McConaughey. Does that work? The more this list would just build and build and build, you'd just be sitting there going, no. Okay, this is ridiculous. This seems too good to be true. This just seems way out there. And the, pa- the picture that, we are pa- that is painted here in our passage, it seems too good to be true. But it is not. It is true as true gets. It's especially so in comparison with the scene of our old covenant that people tried to walk with. It is true that you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. But no one in their right mind would have touched it. You have come to what cannot be touched in this life, but will be so much greater in the next life. You know, people might say, I wish I could worship God in the temple with the things that I can see and I can touch. But, but the, the answer to those people would have been, those things in the temple were meant just as a stopgap between us and the untouchable holiness of God. Somebody might say, I would believe in God if I could just see him. And you might be, think to say, you know, people were warned that they could not see God and live. So be glad you can't see him. Or, well, if you don't believe in him, When you can't see him, you'll never have the chance to see him except when he is your judge. You see the irony in this? Or somebody might say, well, there must be some work that I could do 
in order for God to save me. But the irony is this, you must recognize that there is nothing you can do and that Jesus has done it all. And what we couldn't do, he's done all that we could not do in order that we might be saved. Our passage speaks to Jewish readers that were tempted to return to what could be touched. They were at risk of missing what is truly awesome. They were at risk of walking away from the gospel that they were pretty sure was true. You're in danger of, what's, of missing what's awesome if being accepted by our anti-Christian culture is more important to you. Lecrae said, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. You're in danger of missing what's awesome if you can't set aside entertainment for some quiet time with God. You're in danger of missing what's awesome. And I'm talking about in our daily life, walk with, with the Lord, folks. I'm not talking about going to hell. But even in knowing Christ, you're in danger of missing what's awesome if you can't serve others as He directs because you're too busy serving yourself. You're in danger of missing what's awesome if you refuse a life of gospel mission because it might get in the way of your life plans. You're in danger of missing what's awesome if you refuse to believe that God's throne room is open to His children to find grace and help in time of need. Believe that. Let's pray. Our awesome God. Lord, today, this week, let us get as much of you as is possible. Lord God, let us hold fast and believe in faith that we can come boldly before your throne to find grace and help in time of need. Lord, if there be anyone here that has been thinking that they're somehow earning a relationship with you, that they're somehow making themselves more acceptable to you, I pray, Lord God, that you would introduce yourself to them as the righteous one that cannot be appeased except through Christ. That they would put their total trust in you and you alone. Lord, allow us to live for you this week, for your glory and for our good. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.